Not going to be all snow. A wintry mix is forecast for the listening area. Happy New Year, episode 13. Thank you for sticking through the holiday with us. Hopefully you caught our holiday special. My name is Alex Kaufman. This is Wintry Mix. We are coming to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio in Colchester. And today we're going to be chatting with Hannah Carney, three-time Olympian mogul skier, about the Olympics, about mogul skiing, about her life in skiing. Uh, But before we do that, we want to connect with our new intern. It's Derek uh, from UVM. Derek McDonald or MacDonald? Uh, MacDonald. So M-A-C. And that's origin? A little Scottish. Uh, most people go for the Mick thinking Irish, uh, but it's, it is Scottish. Ah, so MacDonald. How do you say it Scottish style? Uh, you're asking me for my best Scottish accent? Yeah, I am. Yeah, little Derek MacDonald. Oh, that was good. Do that one more time. Derek MacDonald. Wow, you'd be a lot of fun at a Scottish pub on a Saturday night, wouldn't you? Uh, but first, Derek, why don't you get us some background information on moguls and Hannah and see what we can do before the interview. Sure. So the word mogul actually comes from uh, the German language, more specifically the Bavarian dialect. Uh, it comes from the word mugel or, or mugel uh, with a U there instead of the English O. Um, mugel. Mugel. All right. M- mugel. That's close. Anyway, it means uh, mound or small hill. Um, the original style of free skiing um, was called hot dogging, or referred to as hot dogging, um, back in the you know the '60s when it really got going. Just a little geeky stat fact for you: mogul courses are between 200 to 270 meters long, and they have a slope grade of 26 degrees. Well, that gets us started. We're going to be talking to Hannah Carney, three-time Olympian and Vermonter, here in a moment on Wintry Mix. So stay with us. And it's on between Hannah Kearney and Jacinta Fulapuang. This episode of Wintry Mix is proudly supported by Snowbird. Located 35 minutes from Salt Lake City International Airport, Snowbird is stacking foot upon foot of natural snow to kick off the 15-16 season. Take a break from East Coast conditions and get yourself first tram as early as tomorrow while enjoying $35 million in resort upgrades, including remodeled slopeside rooms at the Cliff Lodge and RFID lift tickets that never have to leave your pocket. Give yourself the bird this season and find out how you can get your fifth night free at snowbird.com Ray Hanakerny with a 360 cutting the finish line in first so we are back here on Wintry Mix we have Hannah Carney on the phone but I don't think she's stationary Hannah what are you doing right now I am currently carrying my skis um, after a morning of skiing I'm headed back uh, back home after taking some runs at well the canyons, which is actually now Park City as well. And if if I understand right, it wasn't quite just uh, you going skiing for fun. There was a bit of a, <laughs> of a professional bent to it, right? What was that? We were attempting to raise money for the Youth Sports Alliance, which is an organization, a nonprofit here in Park City that helps kids pursue their winter dreams. So they fund programs, um, luge, bobsled skiing, of course, and ice skating, hockey, um, and just provide opportunity. Of course, something I believe in because I benefited from generous philanthropy uh, during my career. So, Hannah, when I introduce you, I mean, I go with, you know, three-time Olympian mogul skier at Around the Edges for us. So what else you're into? <laughs> I think for the, the like, synopsis uh, of my life, it, you have to mention an Olympian. That's sort of been my goal and my identity uh, for the last almost two decades. Uh, that's almost all I've done. But there's all sorts of other 
little uninteresting things like I studied really hard and I like to cook and the back of my neck is sensitive and I'm a Red Sox fan. Vermonter um, falls uh, on that list too because despite the rest of my team training in Utah and living in Park City, I stubbornly, like a Vermonter, stayed in Vermont um, for my entire 13-year career on the U.S. team. So tell me about that, that, that time period of you know, growing up in Vermont, skiing uh, in Vermont and elsewhere, I'm sure. It started before I can even remember. I learned how to ski when I was two. Um, so all I have as a memory is the home videos my parents took. Um, I didn't, apparently didn't like wearing goggles or uh, gloves because I would ski goggleless uh, with my gloves hanging down. You know, the old like mittens that are attached by a string through your coat? Yeah. I would just let them hang off my hands and go straight down the mountain. Um, from there, I guess I got better at skiing, started like being drawn into the moguls on the side of the trails. When I was eight, my mother signed up for after school freestyle program at the Dartmouth Skiway um, in Lyme, New Hampshire. And together, she and I took freestyle skiing lessons. So we spent a lot of time doing ballet skiing, which for those people who don't know, is basically dancing around on short skis and tall poles and doing tricks. Um, when I was nine, I joined the Waterville Valley freestyle program, and that be, that's when the sport became a little more serious. I started actually competing and driving over there every weekend to train. Um, but during this time, I was still in school. I was running track. I was playing soccer. I had a very normal childhood for all intents and purposes. It wasn't until sort of later in high school um, when I started qualifying for, I guess, higher level competitions. Like, okay, I seem to be better at skiing than I am at track and field. So I think, I think the turning point was making the U.S. ski team. I know that sounds kind of silly because it sounds so far along in your career, but that I made the U.S. ski team when I went to my first international competition. It was the Junior World um, in Finland. And when I won that to qualify for the U.S. ski team, I was like, oh, you mean I'm the best in the world in this sport in this, like, age group? I was like, huh. So that, that, that was a very quick process then. It was like a year from taking it seriously as something you competed in to realizing that you were one of the best in the world. Well, I, I mean, because it was competitive, I took everything I did seriously, probably too seriously. And so I'd always tried really hard in freestyle skiing, and it had been all winter. That's all I did was think about skiing and ski. But then when the spring came, all I thought about was track and field. Then when the fall came, all I thought about was soccer. So it was fairly balanced. I had no interest in going to a ski academy, even when I was in high school, even when it was sort of like, the, the focus, and that's what I was going to be good at. I didn't want to do that. You know, times probably changed. It would be harder to be successful in your sport if you didn't specialize at a younger age, but I'm certainly an advocate for doing everything um, when you're young because who knows what you're actually going to be good at, and I think there's something to be said for balance, mentally keeping yourself fresh, physically even keeping yourself fresh, helped me be successful kind of long-term and have a long career because I didn't burn out. Derek, what do you got? How did your training and preparation vary from sport to sport and how did it change when you just focused on skiing that's a great question i think i used each sport to prepare for the other i have to remember that this is back before maybe not before before i used and like specific trainers for specific sports that wasn't until much later on in my career that we had an athletic trainer who would write a strength and conditioning coach who would write programs for us um so for me the track and field was i was working on my jumping and bounding and fast twitch muscles and that helped me um, in mogul skiing. I think I actually remember a day my coach was never that fast. I always liked being under control in the moguls. And the coach said, you know, it's a race. It's, you run track. You know how that's a race and there's a start gun? Well, this is the same thing. And I, like, kicked off maybe two seconds um, off my time um, by just, like, kind of having that realization, like, oh, yeah, it is also a race. Uh, that's what's fun about mogul skiing. It's kind of everything, you know, form but also speed. 
the year or two leading up to your first Olympics in 2006 in Italy, uh, what was the ramp up and, and prep and expectations for that going into that Olympics? Well, that was at the time when I knew, you know, you had to do a backflip. So because that was not something that came naturally to me, I did spend quite a bit of time in Lake Placid um, jumping on trampolines and skiing down plastic ramps and jumping into a pool of water. So that's how you learn um, the backflip. So that those two years sort of um, were dedicated to that. I worked with coaches that I had worked with at Waterville Valley. But I, the strength and conditioning part, the fitness, flexibility, those things I sort of ignored because there's so much focus on just doing a backflip and learning a backflip, getting the repetitions in. So when I went into the 2006 Olympics, I'd had results. I mean, if you're a good skier, you're bound to at some point have a good result. But I didn't have the consistency that I did later on in my career, and that's because I didn't have uh, the appropriate training. And, you know, part of the reason you train is, yes, to prevent injury and get stronger and get better, but it's also uh, mentally so that when you're at the start date, you sort of like feel like you've done everything you can, and that confidence uh, helps you ski better. So that's what I was lacking in 2006. Um, and I went into that and sort of like hoping it would go well. That's sort of as best you can. And maybe like the confidence that only a 19-year-old can have, thinking, oh, it'll definitely go well. Unfortunately, the result for me in that Olympics was really poor, and a lot of that was my lack of structured training. One would assume, if the the traditional storylines are correct, that instance where you didn't meet your goals helped you meet your goals next time. And what you know, what was that the case over the next four years leading into Vancouver? Yes, but not initially. It's not after what you feel like is failure. I wasn't like instantly motivated. Instead, I questioned myself. I was like, maybe I should have just gone to college. My my friends are there. They're, they seem to be having a good time. But it wasn't until about a year later, after that, 2007, when I hurt my knee. That was genuinely a turning point for me because, you know, when somebody's taken away from you, like the opportunity to compete, you think, oh, yeah, I really do love this. <laughs> but my initial reaction to finding out I had from ASL was like just breaking down in tears without, you know, sort of involuntarily. You're like, oh, I guess I, I, guess I do really want to compete. And having the surgery um, and working with, with rehab specialists and trainers, you learn a lot more about your body, um, about the sport. And from that, um, I, that's where I got the motivation was like wanting to return and seeing the day-to-day progress. Like, well, look, my quad muscle is getting bigger. Oh, I'm getting stronger. Oh, I can breathe more easily. And that is, that was the turning point where I like all of a sudden <laughs> realized what people tell you forever. And maybe you don't realize until you actually accept it is that there is a direct correlation between how hard you train, how much effort you put in and the results that come out. So it's 2010. Uh, the games are in Vancouver that year, uh, just across the, uh, the border from Washington. And um, you're going in with uh, maximum confidence or what? Let's see. No, that year, I think that year was tough for me. I was winning events, and then I was crumbling and crashing and not making finals. But didn't have tons of confidence. My dog had just been diagnosed with cancer, which seems like a small, unrelated um, part of a sport, but it affects you emotionally. There is also so much pressure and stress that you can't really identify at the time. But afterwards, you're like, oh, boy, yeah, that there was tension between your teammates that you put pressure on yourself. Your family is like planning to go to the Olympics, but you haven't necessarily qualified. That's added pressure. There's little things like that that make it a really stressful time. So confidence is the right word until I actually got to the Olympic game. Um, once I was there, I had kind of made up my mind to do everything the opposite of what I had done four years before. I think because 2006 had been such a failure, I had basically nothing to lose. And that's a valuable position to be in. Um, the, woman who ended up getting a silver medal. She was Canadian and had way more pressure on her. I think she'd won six World Cups going into those Olympic Games, and she also was Canadian on her home soil. So I was, in some ways, the underdog, and that is an easier uh, situation to be in. By the time I was in the start gate, I was confident, but leading up to the Games, um, 
there's all sorts of other factors that change your mood and don't necessarily uh, add to your confidence. The highlight of your Olympic career, at least, uh, the gold medal, Vancouver. Uh, what's the month after that like to be a human being? Um, the month after winning a gold medal is really strange. I know that I will never experience uh, that amount of like sleep deprivation and stimulation um, ever again in my life. It was wonderful and just so exhausting. You have so many emotions coursing through your body. There's so many demands on your time. I mean, all positive, but people want to, your hometown wants to celebrate you. You want to experience the rest of the Olympics. Um, you get more fan mail than you'll ever get again. And yet, you're still just you. I think it's, there's a weird realization that you achieve, like, really the only major goal you ever set for yourself in sport. Like, a goal so high, you never actually thought you'd achieve it. And so when you do, there's certainly a weird letdown, like, uh, I did it. Now what? Um, that's when I actually watched the footage of my run. This is when I'm like, well, maybe you just retire because how often would we go out on top? Certainly glad it, I didn't do that, but there's certainly that. You're like, okay, well, I achieved it. So now does that mean it's over? And then it turns out because we're all competitive people, you can find things wrong with what was your best run to date. And so from there forward, I realized, okay, I just won a gold medal, but I think I can be better. And that, that's what drove me for the next Olympic cycle was improving the things that were like cringeworthy to me from watching that run. The bronze medal that felt like a broken heart. How long did that? How long did that last um, after after Sochi? Uh, when you you know went there as a heavy favorite, got a bronze medal, which is fantastic, um, but kind of you know understandably felt let down for yourself because you're so competitive. Uh, how long did that feeling last? And 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 where does it stand now? Um, forever. It's st- it's still the same. Like crushing disappointment except for that i can now view it as like wow that medal first of all i was lucky i easily could have not gotten an olympic medal to go home and Olympic medal is fantastic and then i also look at it as a reward for basically the maturity i probably wouldn't have even had four years before which is i made a massive mistake eight years before i would have just fallen over four years before i might have just blown out um but i fought with everything I had to get the, get it back under control and get back in the line. And so, like, oh, well, all that training and all those squats were worth it because I wouldn't have been able to make family for it. It is just one run. That's our sport. It's endlessly frustrating, but also satisfying for that reason because everything has to be perfect at exactly the right, exactly the right moment and one mistake and you're out. It's not a soccer game where you miss a goal and you have the rest of the game to try again. Um, but that's what makes it so fun when you ski well. You've been there three times and three different countries, uh, three different probably mindsets going in, um, things that you did with your time. Uh, which group of athletes, uh, I guess I'll use the word, enjoy themselves? I won't be able to break it down for every sport, but here's the general summary. An individual sport, you're less likely to be able to enjoy your sport uh, yourself. Skiing's um, individual, but we do have a team that we're very familiar with. The ice skaters come from all individual backgrounds like individual training venues so they're much more isolated um the other benefit to our sport um is that we were on the first day of competition and that has a huge factor in how much we can go to the olympic games the figure skaters even the alpine racers um they have events throughout the olympic games so you're never able to really relax because you're competing early on but you're also competing um later on in the game so you're in training mode i mean you're at the olympic games you're going to make the sacrifice you're going to do everything you have to do to compete well, which means getting the most sleep you can, eating the best you can, staying hydrated, doing the cold tub recovery, seeing PT. It's, it's sort of a, a full-time job. Freestyle skiing is very high up on the list of people who enjoy themselves because we compete early on um, and because we have freestyle in our name. So that's probably built into the culture 
our sport more. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Bobsled goes first weekend, last weekend, so they have a hard time. Um, with I mean, the Olympic Games is pretty short. It's a little over two weeks long. I'm trying to think who has like a one and done, and then they probably just party the rest of the time. Those athletes would be the ones up for the most amount of uh, partying and celebrating. I yeah, if you're a hockey team that gets eliminated early. <laughs> Yeah, okay. So bad hockey players enjoy the Olympics the most. That's eh, probably fair. Sochi, lots of uh, stories obviously coming from there prior to the games, during the games, making their way back to the States in the media. You know, we don't know what's true, what's not true. Uh, you know, what was it like there, you know, as far as, um, you know, from a political sense, from a just readiness of the venue sense, uh, from an organizational sense, uh, you know, were the horror stories that we were hearing, you know, relevant, even existing or worse? I think the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. The, I can genuinely say, and maybe this is just my interpretation of it, but the Olympics and all the games I've gone to are politically neutral, despite the information you have and despite um, the information you get yeah, beforehand about the tensions, you don't feel them during the games. It doesn't take much other than walking into the opening ceremonies and being like, this is not about politics. Um, and it, it's not, no matter what. That's why it's always a shame when, like, their suggestions to boycott things like why do the athletes have to suffer because our politicians don't agree on certain policies but anyway so politically neutral that part was completely fine i felt as safe as ever uh, while i was at the games the organization or the the readiness i should say was i think the reports we were getting back in the u.s are probably exaggerated and that's because the village where the journalists were staying was genuinely not ready so that and they're the ones who are sending the post and the reports back to the u.s and it was I think basically as bad as your, you saw, you know, uh, toilets with no doors, no shower curtains, no pillows, no blankets. The athlete village was a huge improvement from that, but it was not perfect. We got there the day before it technically opened, and there were a lot of kinks that had to be worked out. So the first two days we were there, um, fire alarms were going off in the middle of the night for no reason. And in fact, what woke me up on the day of my Olympic competition was a fire alarm. It was plenty late. It was like 10 o'clock in the morning, but we were so jet lagged. Um, and we had a night event, so we were on that schedule. But anyway, I was like, oh, this isn't a great time. That's how you get woken up on the morning of your Olympic event. I can't say much for how it withheld uh, the test of time. I think it will probably be falling over soon, the Athlete Village, if not, if it hasn't already, because it was flimsily built, but it was clean and new. I mean, little things like I did have to tape my the shower head um, to the wall because otherwise it was just hanging down. I would have to hold it to shower. I also have to turn off the water when I shampoo my hair. Otherwise, it would flood the bathroom. The little things, but like those are very minor. It was completely livable and clean. Fast forward. Um, now you're in Park City, Utah. You're no longer in Vermont. Um, you're not at Dartmouth. You're at Westminster. Um, uh, for some reason of that, there's some deal you get for being a, an Olympian to go to school there. Is that correct? Uh, you actually don't even have to be an Olympian. If you are, it's a relationship that Westminster College has with the United States Ski and Snowboard Association where if you're a current team member or recently retired, I believe they give you two years to finish your degree, you can go to Westminster without paying tuition. And so that was a much better deal than full tuition um, at Dartmouth. So I obviously had to weigh the pros and the cons, but clearly I ended up out here and I have no regrets about it. It's been, uh, it's been great. Do you get, I don't know, treated differently? You're a three-time Olympian going to school with 19-year-olds who have no idea about the world in front of them, and you've done what you've done. What's it like to be uh, you know, a non-trad doing that kind of thing? Oh, for the most part, you can't tell. I feel like just a regular student. It's only the only time this last semester where I really noticed it was the day one of personal finance class when the professor asked who had a credit card, and only half the class raised their hands. Like, 
little moments like that. It's very apparent that I'm in a different stage in my life, but I'm not really a blip on their radar. Um, we all have the same questions about the homework assignments. Um, so for that reason, it's just like grounds you, like humbling, um, and makes me realize that I'm just starting over with whatever I do next. All right. Well, let's try something fun here. True or false? You ready? Sure. People drink too much coffee. False. Aerials is a skill, but it's not skiing. <laughs> True. And yet the, I think the aerials who will, will succeed in the long run are the ones who can ski because landing is still a significant portion of the score. All right. Well done. Uh, global warming is real. It is. I'm in the middle of winter right now, and I think that's what we call it global climate change now because it's messing with the weather pattern. Um, and that's why people get yeah, true, true. I don't need to give you an answer for everything, do I? Nope. Uh, technology is dumbing down humanity. <laughs> False. Someone had to invent it. Uh, this interview is horrible. False. I'm enjoying myself. Okay. And moguls are becoming extinct. I'm going to say false because I want to believe that. So th- that brings me to really what I want to wrap up on here is, you know, where have the moguls kind of gone? Why have they gone um, as far as you know, the amount of terrain covered in moguls and the, the panache of mogul skiing? I obviously never uh, could dream to achieve uh, your success level in moguls, but had my dreams, you know, 20 something years ago. Um, and they're not around like they used to be. What happened? Um, we can blame the technology that you were just speaking of. I think grooming's better. So they just groom more. Now, the average skier doesn't want moguls in the way of them getting down the hill fast, so they disappear. But there's always going to be that cult mogul culture, the Mary Jane, the True Grit at Waterville, um, the places, Killington's Outer Limits, all these places where uh, people love to see moguls, that's always going to be around. It's just this morning, we took eight runs, and six of them were on the groomers, but two were in the moguls, and it's a way better workout skiing bumps, I'll tell you that. Um, the sport is forever going to change. That's what makes it freestyle is that it progresses. So to think that it's dying just because it's changing, I don't think it's fair. Um, I happen to be the type of person who, as soon as something changes, I'm like, ah, oh, it's worse. But that's not necessarily the case. And I, I hope for the sake of our sport that it does continue to change, but the spirit is still in there somewhere. And uh, from being on the World Cup Tour and knowing the people in the sport, it, it very much is. Did straight skis make mogul trails, and without straight skis, mogul trails just simply don't get created as well as they used to by the skiers themselves? That could be the case, yeah. I think you need to make moguls. The turns your turns people are making need to be short, and if they have uh, big, fat skis, they're going to be carving turns, not uh, wide turns, not making mogul turns. But, again, it's like I can barely answer that because I just got my first pair of non-mogul skis. I've been skiing on the skinniest skis you can imagine um, for the past 20 years, so I'm doing my part to try to save uh, the moguls on the, side, on the side of the hill. But I'm sure that is a factor, and they say that those types of skis maybe are easier on people's joints. They don't have to work as hard to turn. And so if they stick around, then there's a chance there won't be as many free-range moguls. Ten years old, little you, dreaming of Olympic glory, little kid right now. Give them some advice. What, what, what should they focus <laughs> on to uh, be successful either in their lives or in their sport? I guess both the same. Enjoy yourself because if you're going to have to become an Olympic champion um, or good at anything in your life, you'll have to make sacrifices and you have to enjoy it in order for those sacrifices to be worth it. Um, I think as far as mogul skiing goes, nothing hurts mogul skiing. In other words, being an all, a well-rounded skier is helpful. It uh, improves your balance. If you're good at acrobatics, that's going to take you a long way. If you're fast, that's part of mogul skiing too. It's okay to have balanced training and to do everything the mountain has to offer. Um, that won't hurt your mogul skiing. Hannah Carney coming to us from Park City, Utah. Hannah, thank you so much for the time, and, and good luck in your classes to you, Derek, and to, to Hannah as well.
<laughs> Thank you very much. Happy winter. Eighth medal in nine races at the World Champ, and it's Hannah Kearney, the brand new dual Marcus World Champion. Welcome back from the studios of Vermont Public Radio in Colchester. My name is Alex Kaufman. I'm here with uh, substitute intern Derek McDonald. Is that? I think you did a pretty good job. That was close. Yeah. We just wrapped up with Hannah Carney, who is from Norwich, Vermont, um, and now lives in Park City, Utah, attending Westminster University uh, out there. Three-time Olympian in the sport of mogul skiing. And what I found most interesting there, Derek, was that you know, she didn't really have that moment when she decided, I want to try to be this amazing mogul skier. She was just really competitive in a lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it really seemed like she didn't focus specifically on skiing until she sort of was forced to, you know, in, in high school. Um, and it's really sort of admirable that she, she went sort of the unconventional route and just, you know, grit and determination found herself on top. Yeah, very balanced, um, had a lot of interest, um, specifically in different sports. But really, it sounds like moguls picked her rather than she picked moguls. I think it made me the skier and rider that I am today. I actually prefer to spend more time on my snowboard than I do on skis. And, and on that snowboard, I prefer to spend virtually all of it in moguls or trees. Well, I hope you are right, and I hope that we continue to see um, mogul trails existing and get back some of that nostalgia for kind of the uh, the mogul lifestyle, if there was ever such a thing. Uh, I remember one. Maybe there wasn't one, but I remember there one way back when. So that was episode 13 with Hannah Carney. We appreciate the assistance from Derek McDonald from the University of Vermont. My name is Alex Kaufman. We are recording to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio in Colchester. We have production assistance from Angela Evansy. Our theme music is by Adam Levy. And new to the show going forward, we have a voicemail box. If you'd like to tell us about your role in the winter economy or any other rant or raid you happen to have, you can call 802-234-3019 and leave us a voicemail. And maybe you will get in the podcast, Ski the Moguls. Shred hard. Shred hard. Ski the Moguls. Bye, guys. Okay, thank you. And let me know when it hits the airwaves or send me a link or however that works. Yeah, I will do that uh, probably sometime midweek next week. Perfect. Thanks, Alex. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye.